The uh, the scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. You can follow along in the Pew Bibles on page 79. This is a very familiar passage for most of us, but God is introducing, or John is introducing some uh, majestic themes in his uh, verses here. First and foremost, he's affirming the the deity of Jesus Christ. He's laying the uh, building blocks for the doctrine of the Trinity and he speaks of the miracle of the incarnation of Jesus. Let us hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Amen. On this Sunday after Christmas in December, we share some readings today, one by a novelist, one by a theologian, one by a pastor, and one by a poet. The first one comes from the magisterial novel, The Brothers Karamazov, written by Fyodor Dostoevsky. In that one of the brothers travels to a local monastery who is headed by an elder, Father Zosima. In one scene, the elder is visited by a variety of pilgrims who seek his help and counsel and healing because he is well known. One of those is a wealthy woman who comes with her young daughter, Lisa. And here the lady expresses her spiritual questions and struggles. I suffer from lack of faith. I only believed when I was a little child, mechanically. I say to myself, what if I've been believing all my life, and when I come to die, there's nothing but the daisies growing on my grave? How, how can I get back my faith? How is one to prove it? I have come now to lay my soul before you and to ask you about it. If I let this chance slip, no one all my life will answer me. How can I prove it? How can I convince myself? Oh, how unhappy I am. I stand and look about me and see that scarcely anyone else cares. 
No one troubles his head about it. And I'm the only one who can't stand it. It's deadly. Deadly. How? No doubt. But there's no proving it, though you can be convinced of it. How? By the experience of active love. Strive to love your neighbor actively. And as far as you advance in love, you will grow sure of the reality of God and of the immortality of your soul. If you attain to perfect self-forgetfulness and the love of your neighbor, then you will believe without doubt, and no doubt can possibly enter your soul. This has been tried. This is certain. In active love, then there's another question. You see, I so love humanity that, would you believe it, I often dream of forsaking all that I have, leaving Lisa and becoming a sister of mercy. I close my eyes and think and dream. And at that moment, I feel full of strength to overcome all obstacles. No wounds, no festering sores could at that moment frighten me. I would bind them up and wash them with my own hands. I would nurse the afflicted. I would be ready to kiss such wounds. But could I endure such a life for long? I shut my eyes and ask myself, would you persevere long on that path? And if the patient whose wounds you are washing did not meet you with gratitude, but worried you with his whims, without valuing or remarking your charitable services, what then? Would you persevere in your love or not? And do you know, I came with horror to the conclusion that if anything could dissipate my love to humanity, it would be ingratitude. In short, I am a hired servant. I expect my payment at once. That is, praise and the repayment of love with love. Otherwise, I am incapable of loving anyone. It's just the same story as a doctor once told me. He was a man getting on in years and undoubtedly clever. He spoke as frankly as you, though in jest, in bitter jest. I love humanity, he said, but I wonder at myself. The more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. But what's to be done? What can one do in such a case? Must one despair? No, it is enough that you are distressed at it. Do what you can, and it will be reckoned unto you. Much is done already in you since you can so deeply and sincerely know yourself. Love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with love in dreams. Love in dreams is greedy for immediate action, rapidly performed and in the sight of all. 
Men will even give their lives if only the ordeal does not last long, but is soon over with all looking on and applauding as though on the stage. But active love is labor and fortitude. I predict that just when you see with horror that in spite of all your efforts, you're getting farther from your goal instead of nearer to it, at that very moment, I predict that you will reach it and behold clearly the miraculous power of the Lord who has been all the time loving and mysteriously guiding you. Forgive me for not being able to stay longer with you. They are waiting for me. Goodbye. And then the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaks of the miracle of the Incarnation, of the love that God has for us that is not a dream, that doesn't just love us abstractly, but loves us in the particular. God becomes human. God becomes human, really human, While we endeavor to grow out of our humanity, to leave our human nature behind us, God becomes human, and we must recognize that God wants us also to become human, really human. Whereas we distinguish between the godly and the ungodly, the good and the evil, the noble and the common, God loves real human beings without distinction. God takes the side of real human beings and the real world against all their accusers. But it's not enough to say that God takes care of human beings. This sentence rests on something infinitely deeper and more impenetrable, namely that in the conception and birth of Jesus Christ, God took on humanity in bodily fashion. God raised his love for human beings above every reproach of falsehood and doubt and uncertainty by himself entering into the life of human beings as a human being, by bodily taking upon himself and bearing the nature essence, guilt, and suffering of human beings. Out of love for human beings, God becomes a human being. He does not seek out the most perfect human being in order to unite with that person. Rather, he takes on human nature as it is. Howard Thurman was a theologian and pastor, dean of the chapel at Boston University, dean of the chapel at Howard University, and a professor at the Howard University School of Religion. He was also director of religious life at Morehouse and Spelman Colleges. He invites us, encourages us, to live loving one another, not in the abstract, but in real life, and invites us to do two things, to make the love that has come down concrete in our lives. The gift of grace. This is the season of Christmas. For many people in many places, It is a time of great pressure and activity, a time when nerves are tense, and when a great deal of anxiety hovers over the common life. 
And this is just the reversal of what the mood and the meaning of Christmas really are. I would like to suggest then that for those of you who care deeply about the meaning of your own lives and the significance of moments in high celebration, that you would do two things during this season. One, that you will seek reconciliation with any person or persons with whom you have at the moment a ruptured or unhappy relationship. During the year that is rapidly coming to a close, you have perhaps had many experiences with many kinds of people, those with whom you live, those with whom you work, or those with whom you play. And in the course of these goings on, there have been times when the relationships heightened and were thrown out of joint, and a desert and a sea developed between you and someone else. And you were so busy with your own responsibilities and perhaps so full of hostility yourselves that there was no time to give to the business and the experience and the grace of reconciliation. So will you think about such a person? Find a way by which you can restore a lost harmony so that your Christmas gift to yourselves will be peace between you and someone else. The second is just as simple. Will you, with your imagination, with your fancy, will you conjure up into your minds a gift of grace that you might give to someone for whom you have no obligation someone whose need is not so great that if you don't respond to it during this season, you will feel guilty, but someone upon whom you might confer a private blessing. It may be just to pick up the telephone and call someone whose life is not tied to yours in any way, but someone about whom you know something and with this knowledge as a background, you say a word of reassurance, of comfort, of delight, of satisfaction, so that you will feel that out of the fullness of your own hearts, you have conferred upon some unsuspecting human being a gentle grace that makes the season a good and whole and hail and happy time. Two things, concrete, reconcile with someone and confer a private blessing. In the late 60s or early 70s, the great, in my eyes, folk duo Simon and Garfunkel recorded a singing of the carol Silent Night and then as it played, the head news headlines from the evening news drowned out that song. A century before, during the Civil War, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow could have had a similar feeling. Not only as he heard carols in a church 
was there a civil war going on, but it had become personal. While dining at home on December 1st in 1863, he received a telegram that his son had been severely wounded four days earlier in fighting in Virginia. The bullet had traveled across his back and skimmed his spine, and paralysis was a possibility. Longfellow and another son hurried down to Virginia to see them. They received their mixed reports about the prognosis for his son. Then a couple of weeks later, on Christmas Day, 1863, Longfellow, at that point 57-year-old, widowed because of a horrific house fire just two years before which had taken the life of his wife, father of six children, the oldest of whom had been nearly paralyzed as this country fought a war against itself, wrote a poem to seek, seeking to capture the dynamic and the dissonance in his own heart and the world he observes around him. He heard Christmas bells that December day and the singing of peace on earth. And he had to make his own decision, go through his own doubts, about which message actually sounded the loudest and would last. Here is poem Christmas Bells, which you may also know through the carol that was later written around it. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of a Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth. Goodwill to men. As we prepare to go forth into the world and into the year that lies ahead, I invite you to receive these words of Pastor Thurman to his congregation and to us. The work of Christmas. When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among brothers to make music 
in the heart.